Let's pray together. Lord, you've given us your word that we would have insight into things and into reality that apart from you, we would not be able to see. And so I pray this morning that as we look at this passage, that you would expand our understanding, that you would expand our imagination, that you would help us to see what you are telling us in your word, that you would help us to see with greater clarity uh, the greatness of the gospel of Jesus and what it means for us and for our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us uh, this fall, uh, as Jeff already mentioned, we are working through Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, a church that you will remember um, uh, came into being by this powerful work of God. Paul and his companions were only in this city for a short time before they were run out of town by the authorities. And yet in this really short time, there became this community of people who were knowing and following Jesus. Paul, concerned for this young church, he sends Timothy to see how they're doing. Timothy comes back bringing the news about these believers and Paul writes this letter to encourage them, to remind them of the things that he taught them as well as to instruct them in areas where they are confused. If you were with us last week, the end of chapter four was one of those confusing areas where there was some confusion among the Thessalonian believers about death and the hope that is in Jesus. This passage, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is about living, about life right now in the present. And what Paul says here, he is confident these believers already know well, if you look at verses 1 and 2, where he writes, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And yet Paul is going to drill down into the instruction that he's already given them. He's going to drill down into this to help them to, again, see this big picture of the gospel and what it means for their lives right now. Uh, and so what I want to ask you to kind of begin is to think about what difference does Jesus make for your life right now, like today? Think about the world in which we live, uh, you know, jobs, emails, coffee, cars that break down, children's sports, marriages or singleness, um, all the things of life, politics, like what difference does Jesus make right now? How should faith in Jesus make a difference in the way that we conceive of our lives, in the way that we imagine our lives? That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. And let me just say, this passage is like a big picture kind of passage. So um, if you like concrete details, we'll get to some, but it's really the rest of chapter 5 that is going to kind of tease out what this looks like in the community of faith, what it looks like, uh, these specific sorts of things. But today it's the big picture. And if I was to summarize uh, in one sentence this passage, I would say this, Paul wants us to stay awake to the cosmic gospel. Paul wants us to stay awake to the cosmic gospel. 
So let's first start, and I want to think about this cosmic gospel, explain what I mean by that, and then second, what it looks like to stay awake to that reality. So the cosmic gospel. When I say cosmic gospel, what I'm trying to get at is really what I hope you will see from this morning is just the hugeness and the bigness of the gospel. If I was to ask you, define the gospel. What is the gospel? You know, depending on your background, your familiarity with Christianity, you might say different things, you might explain it in certain ways, but perhaps, you know, like a passage like John 3.16 might come to mind. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm a sinner. God sent, God sent Jesus to die for my sin that when I believe in him, I'm not condemned but I'm going to go to heaven uh, with God. And we could call this the John 3.16 gospel. And there's a lot true in here. Uh, there's a lot of things that we even see reflected in our own passage of 1 Thessalonians. Jesus died for us, that we might have salvation in him, that we would live with him forever. But let me say, if this is, you know, all the gospel is to you, what does that mean for now? So, like, Jesus died for you in the past, and in the future you're, you know, going to be with God. But what about right now? And what about the world in which we live? If all we have is a John 3.16 gospel, it's not hard to imagine how, in a sense, you could end up with a faith that is very individualistic, that doesn't really help you to understand what it means like to live right now. And we already have an individualistic culture, so if you take an individualistic culture and you add some individualistic sort of understanding of Jesus, you could see how it's easy to get a sort of faith that may or may not have really much room for uh, a community of faith, for the church, you know, kind of take it or leave it. A faith that really doesn't make, make a ton of difference in how our lives are lived right now. It doesn't make maybe a ton of difference in how we dream and how we set goals and how we think about our lives. A faith that we might just look kind of like everybody else around us. So let me say at the start, the, the result of not having this cosmic gospel that Paul's going to show us here means that we won't even have the categories in our mind to understand what a deep apprenticeship to Jesus even looks like. I want you to circle some words in this text. If you don't have a pen, you can mentally do it. The good news of the gospel is about, verse 1, the times, circle that, and dates, probably better translated maybe seasons. It is about, verse 2, the day of the Lord, and then just notice or circle the word day as it appears in verse 4, 5, and 8. For Paul, the wide-angle lens of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that the future day of God's kingdom, the new world, the new age that the whole Old Testament was looking toward in hope, that future day has broken into the present through the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? The Old Testament is this story of looking forward, 
looking forward to a day where there's going to be universal peace, where there's not going to be war anymore, where there's not going to be sickness, and there's not going to be death, and there's not going to be evil, and, and all who were standing against God and his purposes and doing evil in the world, there's going to be a judgment and a setting things to rights again, and there's going to be a king, and this king is going to rule the whole world. And this cosmic gospel, Paul says, has dawned in Jesus. The future has broken into the present. I know that's like maybe, it's very conceptual, right? So here's my illustration. Back to the future. It, you know, classic 80s movie, if you've not seen it, you really need to join the fun and watch Back to the Future. Uh, the movie is about Marty McFly, who is a teenager from 1985, and he travels back in time to the present of 1955. And into the present of 1955, Marty brings a lot of new things. So, for example, he brings a new way of dressing, Calvin Klein underwear. If you recall, they call him Calvin Klein because they think that must be his name because it's sewn into his underwear. He brings the puffy vest. You remember what the waiter says to him. Uh, what's with the life preserver, kid? Uh, he brings uh, news about who is going to be the president in 1985. Ronald Reagan, the actor? He brings Star Wars, skateboarding, and 80s you know, just like coolness into 1955. And by far the best scene in the entire movie, especially if you know me and my love of guitar, is the scene where he's playing a cherry red ES-345 Gibson guitar. And he goes into this like ripping solo on the tune Johnny Be Good, and he's playing power chords, and there's guitar feedback, and he's doing like Eddie Van Halen style finger tapping on the guitar. He brings the future of rock and roll into the present of 1955. And if you can think about that image and that illustration, that is a dim view of what the New Testament says has happened in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because in Jesus, a new way of being human has dawned into this world. And in Jesus, there is a whole new life, the life of the age to come, right now that you can experience. In Jesus, there is a new people of God, of Jews and Gentiles and people from every tribe and language and nation. In Jesus, by the Holy Spirit given to us, there is a new ability to obey and love God from the heart. The future world, the future day of God's kingdom has broken into the present. And if you think about the John 3.16 gospel, or if you're familiar with the theological term, and it's okay if you're not, justification, right? The idea that you can be declared righteous by God because of what Jesus has done for you. What is that but the future verdict brought into the present and given to you now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus? This is the cosmic gospel. And this is what Paul says we have to stay awake to. Because for Paul, this morning, if, if you're someone who has not yet trusted in Christ, you've not yet placed the weight of your life on Jesus, you are, verse 4, in darkness. And you belong to, verse 5, the night. And you are asleep. 
you are asleep to the most real thing that there is. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, Paul's concern for, for me, for us, would be that somehow we would drift off to sleep and we would sleepwalk through life, that we would live in this world of night and darkness like the day has not yet dawned, that we would not live into our identity, who we are in Christ, that we would not live into our true selves, that we would not have this way of conceiving of who we are and what God is doing. Paul wants us to stay awake to the cosmic gospel. And so with kind of the remaining time, I want us to look at this passage and think about how do we stay awake? So if you look at verses 1 through 3, we stay awake by recognizing the coming destruction. You know, the Roman Empire was great at PR, if you were one of these early believers in Jesus and Thessalonica, your whole world was filled with messages that sought to form you into the kind of person that put your hope in the Roman Empire. I mean, everything from like your money, your coins, the statutes and buildings and monuments that you walk by every day, the various uh, rituals and civic religious sort of practices that just the community engaged in, the community life, all reminded people and celebrated the empire. You have peace because of Rome and her emperor. You have safety and security because of Rome and the emperor. And that's almost certainly what's being referenced in verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, right? Rome has ushered you into this age of peace, into a kingdom that will never end. Look at our military strength. Look at our technological you know, innovations. Look at our beautiful cities. Look at our roads. But for Paul in the New Testament, that is an illusion. If that is your hope, you've gone asleep to reality, as well as the coming judgment. When God is going to judge human pride that seeks to build its own version of the kingdom apart from God, apart from knowing Him, apart from loving Him, and apart from anything that God has to say. And let me say, just like, God doesn't do this judging thing because he's just grumpy or he's mean or something like that. In, in the biblical narrative, you have to understand that we were created to live under God's good kingdom and rule, knowing him, loving him, and building a beautiful world together. And when humanity turns from that vision and turns away from God, the world quickly becomes a place of violence and death and destruction, and sadness. And there has never been a nation, and there has never been an empire from Rome all the way to our country that has ever been able to usher in utopia. Paul would say to us, if your hope for the world lies in human progress, or in technology, or in the vision of utopia from the political left, or from the political right, you are asleep to reality. You're asleep to the historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means. 
So we stay awake by recognizing the coming destruction. We also stay awake by recognizing our identity in Christ. Look at the identity language in this passage. Paul speaking to believers in Jesus, he writes, verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. Verse 5, you are all children of light, children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Verse 8, since we belong to the day. Right, again, we're coming back to this idea. If you're a Christian, you, you don't belong to this present world. You belong to the age to come, this new creation. And this is like the crazy thing, right? Because your feet right now, mine and yours, they're planted in Hinsdale, Illinois in 2021. And yet, who you are could never be identified by the things in this world. Because your identity, who you are, is in Jesus Christ as someone who belongs to that new creation. And this has just immense amount of implications for how we live right now. And one of the things it means is that we have to resist all the identities and all the ways that this world will seek to form us into people who know who we are and and who we're not and who we belong to and why we have value because of something in this world. And so let me just name a few. One, a performance identity. I know who I am. I know I have value because of my SAT score, because of my grades, or what college I get into, or I went to, or because of my career, or how much money I have. That cannot be who you are, right? I mean, having done college ministry for eight years before coming here, that is one of the most pressing issues for young people who even believe in Jesus and hold to all these things, but how do they conceive, how do you conceive of your identity and who you are. But it also means, right, my identity can't ultimately be in my race or in my ethnicity. It can't ultimately be in my gender, in my sexuality. Or even if, right, I'm a person who, like, gender and sexuality is a real struggle for me. You can't be identified by that struggle because ultimately who you are is a part of that new creation in Christ. And my identity can't be in my political convictions. I mean, I just want to say a few things about this in particular. I was listening to a podcast a month ago, and it was about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, masking, political polarization, shaming the way both the left and the right can be so extreme. And a professor from UC San Francisco, a doctor by the name of Vinay Prasad, self-professed progressive, made this extremely insightful comment. He said this, Americans are a religious people, but we don't have religion anymore. And so what happens is some of these issues take on religious proportions. We approach these kinds of issues with religious fervor. We don't have religion in our lives, and so politics becomes our religion, or our Twitter tribes become our religion. Just in the last week, I was listening to another podcast where New York Times columnist David Brooks was saying something very similar. Brooks was speaking of what he himself called the God-shaped hole in all of us, that hole that we have to fill, that sense that we need meaning, that we need an identity, that we need a place of belonging, and Brooks says the worst possible way of filling that hole is politics. To make politics your identity is so problematic because 
This is a quote from him. To compromise your identity is dishonor, and so I can't compromise, and I define myself against the other. The British missiologist Leslie Newbegin predicted in the 70s that the Western world, as it secularized, it would not get less religious, but that religion would just shift, particularly into the realm of politics. Some of you may know the name Francis Schaeffer. He said something very similar in his book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century. Writing in 1970, over 50 years ago, Schaeffer specifically warns about the evangelical church cozying up to and getting into bed with the political right against the political left. And it's only possible to do that if you have a shrunken gospel. If you are asleep to the reality of who we are in Jesus. Because to know who you are in Jesus and to be identified with him, again, you're a part of a completely different kingdom. You, you have a citizenship in heaven. You are a part of that new creation. That's who you belong to. And so one of the implications is you have political convictions. I have political convictions. But you can be critical of your side, whatever side that is, because it's not your identity. It's not who you are. And so you can listen to the news or you can watch cable news. You can watch MSNBC or Fox or CNN or whatever. And you can seek to listen for truth. And you can seek to search for truth. But you can also recognize the ways in which both the right and the left are not operating out of the fruit of the Spirit. That they're not operating out of the new creation, the day that has dawned in Christ but rather, they are of this age. That there are places where there is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. But rather, there can be this stoking of the flesh. In terms of this passage, asleep and participating in the present darkness where either the right or the left can seek to construct a narrative and draw us into the works of the flesh so that we're drawn into hatred and fits of anger and divisions, and none of that is helping us to be who we are in Christ. And verse 11 of this text, it is not helping us to encourage one another who we are and to whom we really belong. To the extent that we fail to recognize who we are in Christ, whether that be an identity that's constructed based on sexuality or gender or race or politics or our accomplishments or anything else, we will inevitably participate in exclusionary, divisive darkness of this age, of this world, not the new creation to which we belong. And we will fail to help one another realize who we are in Christ. Finally, uh, we stay awake by living into our true selves. It is out of this identity as children of the day, verse 5, that Paul calls us to live into our true selves, which in addition to this, this right not being asleep, looks like being sober, verse 6. Paul writes, verse 7, if you follow with me, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. 
He's continuing to use this metaphor of night and darkness to help us see, look, there's going to be certain ways that people who are in darkness, who are of the night, who live in the night, act. There's going to be certain ways that they go about life. And one of the ways that he kind of captures this is drunkenness. And by this, he means more than just drinking too much, though he obviously means that as well. But drunkenness in Scripture is often connected with uh, sins of impulsivity and just, right, doing whatever you feel like is going to give you pleasure. And, I mean, to be drunk literally is, is to be dulled to reality. And Paul says, everyone else around you, they're going to be living like it's still nighttime. And so they're going to be doing nighttime things, dulling themselves to the reality of this coming day that's going to come in all of its fullness, just giving themselves to their desires and whatever they feel like doing in the moment just to have a good time. And Paul says, you, we, must be different because you're not of the night. You belong to that day. And so, verse 8 since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Put on this defensive armor which is yours in Christ, Paul says. Put on faith in Christ, resting on him, receiving him, placing the weight of your life on him. Put on love the love that you receive from God as one of his beloved children. Receive that love and live it out in the world. Put it on with one another and with everyone. Finally, put on the hope of salvation, right? The absolute concrete assurance that this coming day of salvation will in fact happen because Jesus has died and he has been raised from the dead. Take that absolute assurance of hope and put it on and wear that faith and that love and that hope and be encouraged, brothers and sisters, verse 9 and 10. God's purpose for you as someone who belongs to Jesus is not going to be destruction and wrath because Jesus has died for you. God's purpose is that you will receive the fullness of salvation. I mean, I'm just reflecting on some of what Ted said. Some of us have tasted salvation now, and it seems like the best thing that we've ever eaten in our entire lives, and that's like the smallest appetizer you can ever imagine at the best restaurant you've ever gone to. Because that is what is coming. And so therefore, encourage one another. In these things, Paul says, verse 11, build one another up as you are doing. Keep doing it. I hope you see the gospel makes a difference right now in this life. How you conceive of the world, how you think about history and where it's going, how you conceive of yourself and your own identity and what makes you, you, and who, to whom you belong, and how you can have this life of the age to come and begin to taste it and experience it. Now, the gospel makes a difference. And so I want to close by just reading a few verses from Romans chapter 13, which is a parallel passage to this one. I want to read this and then give us a few moments of silent prayer and reflection 
to respond to the teaching and the reading of Scripture, to give you and I space to reflect, to confess our sins where that may be appropriate, to ask for God's help. Romans 13, starting in verse 11. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's spend a few moments in silent prayer.